0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, a professor of economics at the University of San Francisco. My guest today is Nick Huntington-Klein, an assistant professor of economics at Seattle University. We'll be talking today about his book, The Effect, an introduction to research design and causality. Nick, welcome. Hi, thank you. So um, you're teaching at Seattle University, It's another uh, progressive Jesuit institution like the University of San Francisco. So uh, glad to get a chance to uh, to talk to you on the show. Um, In addition, you got your bachelor's degree from Reed College in Oregon and your PhD from University of Washington. So my first question is, why do you like the rain so much? (laughs) <laughs> you know, uh, the, the sun just feels so oppressive
1: to me. I was in uh, Southern California for a few years. Uh, my first job was at uh, California State University, Fullerton, uh, and uh, it was just sunny all the time. Uh, I, I grew up in Humboldt County, which is sort of the, uh, the Oregon part of, Calif- of California, you might call it. Uh, so I, that's, that's sort of the climate that I'm used to.
0: I can relate. Yeah. We're, you know, I'm in San Francisco and uh, my children are growing up where again, like in, in the clouds, like this past couple of weeks, it's been like 65 degrees here. And we've thought about turning on the heater while the rest of the country is like completely dying of heat waves. Um, But, uh, and that seems to suit them. Um, All right. So um, all right. So getting to your book um, first, just, just give us the the basics um, for people who aren't familiar. So what is research design and, and what is, causality? Or how do they relate? So I mean, what the book is about is, you know, you want to
1: understand something about the world, right? We, we want to know how the world works. That's, for many of us, that's the reason why we get up in the morning. Um, but, uh, you know, doing that is, is really hard. Uh, and, you know, if we are working with data in some format that you want to use what you can observe about the world to learn something about how the world works, uh, you need to think carefully about well, what is the way that I can approach this? You know, I, I want to answer a question. Uh, how can I design a study? How can I design my research? Uh, and that could be in the form of you know making a randomized experiment. You know, if I want to answer how this whether this drug cures the disease, I might answer my question by designing a uh, experimental research design, uh, where I randomize some people to get a drug and other people not to. If I can't do that, let's say I want to know what's the effect of uh, the minimum wage on the poverty rates or something like that. Well, I can't randomize that. Uh, and so how can I look at the data that is there uh, and try to figure out, okay, well, I can't, I can't actively reach in and, and make some, com- you know, some areas raise their minimum wage and make other areas keep it the same or lower it. Um, but I still want to be able to answer this question. So in what, what angle can I look at the data uh, or in what situation can I study this relationship such that when I get an answer back from my data, when my computer spits out a number, that I know what that number represents, that I know that that number actually answers the question. How can I design the analysis that I do such that it actually answers the question that I want to answer? Uh, and you know if you're if you're doing that about a question that's causal in nature, I want to know if the minimum wage causes the the poverty rate to decline or the unemployment rate to go up or whatever you want to know. Uh, then that's a causal inference research design. I'm trying to figure out how can I look at the data such that the number that it gives me back uh, represents some sort of causal relationship rather than just a correlation. We've all heard correlation is not causation. Um, but uh, that's, that's a little bit of an overstatement because some correlations are causal in nature. If you look at the correlation between smoking and lung cancer, we find a correlation there. And that we think that we're pretty sure that that's because smoking causes lung cancer. Uh, but the question is, how do we look at a, diff- a bunch of different correlations and figure out which ones represent causal relationships, which ones don't? Uh, and if we have one that doesn't represent a causal relationship, how can we look at the question differently to make sure that it does?
0: Right. So why don't you tell me about one of your, your favorite methods or, or studies and give an example of, of how it works in, in practice?
1: Sure. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of different kinds of causal inference research designs that are that can be applied in a lot of different contexts. Uh, one of them is called regression discontinuity. And this one's very popular these days, I think for good reason. Uh, and the idea of, of regression discontinuity is this, that you have some sort of treatment. You want to know the effect of some sort of treatment or policy or something. Uh, and who gets the treatment and who doesn't is based on some sort of cutoff value. So you know, for example, let's say you want to know uh, what's the effect of getting into a gifted and talented program in school? You give kids an exam, uh, and if they score above a certain score on the exam, then they get into the gifted and talented program. And they don't. And if you look at people who are just on the just on the border between getting in and getting out, uh, then you think maybe, maybe those people are pretty comparable, except that some of them got the treatment, some of them didn't. Right? If I if I got a ninety, so getting, so oh, let me
0: interrupt and, and and back up and just I think this is a nice example of. Um, you know, one of those things where, uh, yeah, just hi- highlight for us to, so, yeah, like, walk us through, like, why, why can't we just look at the people who got in the program, all of them, and compare them to all the people who didn't get in the program and say, you know, these people all went to, you know, Harvard or Seattle University or some other uh, top institution. And then the people who didn't get into the program, uh, you know, are gas station attendants.
1: Right. So, yeah, you might say, as a first pass, I see that some people got into the program, some people didn't. Well, if I compare that, well, the people who got in, maybe they did better in the job market later on, they earned more money. And the ones who didn't, maybe they earned less money. Uh, and you might say, okay, I found this correlation. You know, there's a correlation between getting into the program and, and earning more money later on. Uh, but the, uh, this, this relationship, this correlation represents multiple different causal relationships, right? We can't tell which one is which we, we say, okay, well, maybe it's part of the reason why we see that correlation is because the gifted and talented program has some sort of effect. But also, you know, the kids who've gotten to the gifted and talented program, they were already gifted and talented to start, right? That's the whole point of the program. And so the relationship that I see in the data represents both of these causal stories, And if I can't tell one from the other, if I can't separate out those two different stories, I can't do what's called identify the causal effect of interest. Um, And so uh, when we say correlation is not causation, that's often what's going on. It's that there might even be some sort of causation sitting inside of the correlation, but we need to dig it out from all the other causal stories that are going on. And uh, so that's why we can't just compare the kids in the gifted and talented program against the ones who aren't. But if we are giving getting into the program on the basis of some sort of exam score, and I, let's say that you know you got a 90 on your exam and that gets you into the program and I got an 89 and that keeps me out of it. Well, a 90 and an 89 are pretty similar, right? You know, different, different kinds of kids are in the program or out of the program. But if you got a 90 and I got an eighty nine, I mean, that could just be, you know, I woke up one day and, you know, we were out of my favorite cereal, so I was in a bad mood, so I got a slightly lower score on my exam than I might normally get. Right. That, that's that's basically random. And So comparing you with your 90 in the program against me with my 89, not in the program that we can we can pretty you know reasonably say comparing those two people, they're pretty much the same, uh, except that one of them got into the program and one of them didn't. So it, we can get rid of that other causal story that it's just the smarter kids getting into the program and leave ourselves just with the causal story of it's the act, it's the program that actually had an effect. So that's the basic idea behind regression discontinuity, that you're trying to find this cutoff and that you think that, you know, right around that cutoff, people are pretty comparable, uh, except that one of them got treated and one of them didn't. So one of my favorite applications of this uh, is by Seth Zimmerman. Uh, and he is interested in the question of, well, what's the impact of college on people who just barely get in, right? So in the United States, we've seen the the people, the proportion of people who go to college go way, way, way up over the past number of decades, right? So it used to be pretty rare that somebody would go to college. Now something like 70% of people at least to get a little bit of college experience, right? So when you do this, necessarily, you're expanding the range of people who go to college by quite a bit. You're get, you're, you are now sending to college a lot of people who probably would not have been able to get into college 50, 60 years ago, right? And so it's something that you hear co- commonly when people argue about whether this is a good thing or not is, hey, you send these people who could, who could not have gotten in before. They're not going to learn anything. They're not going to get anything out of it. It's not going to be valuable for them. It's basically wasted money or wasted time, wasted effort. It's not a good idea. So it's an important question to ask. Uh, well, you know, is it actually, You do, do, do these kids get anything out of going to college even though they can just barely get in? And so what he looks at is he looks at a a particular university, Florida International University that had a, you know, a test score or a a grade cutoff to get in. Uh, There was a sort of a very, very strict set of requirements at the sort of lower end of you can just barely get in or or just not. And because it was sort of a lower end uh, uh, cutoff, the people who didn't get in largely were not going to college. So either you, you got a score that was high enough, and you just barely got into this college, and you could go, or you just missed the cutoff, and you didn't, you probably didn't go to college. So if we look at people who just barely got into this one college versus people who just barely didn't, we are looking at people who are largely the same, except that some of them got to go to college and some of them didn't. And they're people who are just on the edge. They're just on that lower margin of being able to go or not. And so comparing those two groups of people, uh, what he finds is that you do see considerably higher labor market outcomes after the fact, even though a lot of these students who go aren't even graduating, right? They're just going for a little while. A lot of them are dropping out. Uh, and yet you still see, on average, these higher uh, labor market outcomes over time. Uh, I believe I'm trying to remember the, off the top of my head. It was on I think it was on the order of a couple thousand dollars uh, a quarter uh, in terms of additional earnings, um, and, uh, which suggests that, yeah, even at those very lower end margin, people who just barely could get into college still seem to get something out of it, at least in the form of labor market returns.
0: That's really interesting what you um said there uh because it's not just about uh you know there's also sort of debate of like oh is it just kind of some kind of you know credentialism or certificate where we as a society have been duped into thinking you need a degree and therefore we just pay people with any you know bachelor's degree more even though they're not better at their job or something but you mentioned that it's not even necessarily even if you didn't graduate just having I guess, taking a year or two of, of classes actually uh, seems to put these people ahead in terms of their ability to sort of get ahead and earn money in the world.
1: Yeah. So the treatment in this paper was getting into college. Uh, and, and even if you just look at, so and he, he does it two different ways. One of the ways he does it is what's the effect of being eligible for going to this college. And the other one is what's the effect of actually going to this college, right? Two, two separate treatments. And he finds that even just being eligible has a positive effect on average, so uh, even even averaging out the people who you know didn't graduate or even didn't go. I mean, if, if you didn't go, obviously college is not actually going to help you. Uh, but you know, if you if the effect for you is zero, we're averaging that against the effect of somebody who did go, and it's, if that's big enough, that we still see a, a, a positive effect there. Um, and I mean, and this this study can't really separate out the credentialism versus the actual learning. Although keeping in mind, right, you know, if you if you didn't graduate, there's only a limited possible role that credentialism can can really play.
0: Right, right. Yeah. So I guess it's not doesn't quite directly test that, but it it could go with it uh, a little bit. Um, okay. Yeah. That's uh, that's very cool. So. Um, all right. So another thing you did in your, your book, you actually spent um, quite a, you spent quite a bit of uh, of the book on uh, causal diagrams. And so so tell tell me what those are and why you chose to include them. That they're not kind of part of the standard econometrics uh, curriculum, but um, but you've made a, a pretty extensive use of them. So uh, so
1: what causal diagrams are? Is they're a way of writing down how you think the world works. So one of, the, one of the frustrating things about causal inference, about trying to get the causal effects, is that it is literally impossible to do unless you're willing to make some sort of claim about how you think the world works, how, how the data was generated. And this is even true if you're trying to do some sort of randomized experiment, right? A randomized experiment still is based on some assumptions, uh, some theories about how you think the world fits together. Um, and so... To give an example of this, let's say, for example, that we are looking at some data and we observe that, uh, you know, every morning a rooster crows and then shortly after that, the sun rises, right? Now, now it's obvious to us because we know how the world works that the rooster is not causing the sun to rise, Right. But if you only had data, if you were completely agnostic about you were unwilling to make any assumptions about the way that the world works, you would not be able to determine that that's that it's not the case. Right. You would not be able to show just using data that it's not the rooster's fault. Right. Um, That, uh, you know, even if you notice that, you know, sometimes, hey, the rooster doesn't crow and the sun still comes up, you, you there's still you still need some more assumptions to be able to establish that that's not what's going on. So we ha- you have to be willing to impose some theory about the way that the world works in order to disentangle the different causal stories, to even understand what those different causal stories are, right? Um, uh, you know, going back to the gifted and talented example, I observe in the data that being in this program is correlated with some outcomes later on. Um, if, and if I want to be able to say, oh, well, I think that one of the reasons why that is, is just that smarter kids are getting into the program in the first place. I need to have that understanding of the world, that that's what's happening, that that is what's driving people to be in the program before I can say, oh, that's an alternate causal story that I need to get rid of. So you have to have some way of using your understanding of the world to guide your analysis. And there's a bunch of different ways to do this. So as you mentioned, in in most econometrics applications or most econometrics uh, uh, teaching, um, we don't use causal diagrams. And, and what you might do is you might write down a series of equations that reflect your understanding of the world, right? You might write down, you know, if, you, if, you, if you've ever taken like an economics class, maybe you would write down a supply and demand model and then turn that into, you know, a statistical version of that so you can, you can apply your data to it, which is a series of equations, right, that you, that you use to reflect how you think the world works, right? That's what a model is. Uh, Now, causal diagram is a sort of simplified version of that, where instead of having to write down a series of equations, you can just think through what are the important features of this model, what are the important variables at play, and how do they affect each other, What, what things cause which other things, right? I can look at my rooster and sun data, and I can say, okay, I think that, you know... Uh, the rotation of the earth uh, determines whether we are seeing the sun at a particular time of day and also determines, uh, you know, what light the rooster can see and therefore whether the rooster decides to crow, right? So what are my variables there? Uh, you know, the position of the earth, uh, the visible light on the farm where the rooster lives, the rooster crowing, and the sun being visible, the sun rising, Right. And I can tell you, well, you know, the, rota- the, the rooster is not causing the rotation of the earth. Uh, I'm willing to make that assumption. Uh, so I should, you know, maybe the rotation of the earth affects the, uh, the amount of light you can see, the amount of light you can see affects what the rooster's doing. And then, you know, the, the, uh, then we can observe that the relationship between the rooster crowing and the sun rising. Um, and so you can, you can write these things down in a pretty simple way, right? You just have to think through what are the important features of the world that are explaining why we see the data that we see and how do they cause each other. And the cool thing about that uh, is that this relatively simple model that you can write down without really having any sort of mathematical sophistication, you really just are, how do you understand the world to work? Write it down. Uh, And this diagram can, in a lot of cases, tell you exactly what your research design needs to be in order to separate out the different causal uh, stories for why you see a correlation. Right? If you look at a diagram, you can visually see... Uh, that the different pathways between the, the points on the diagram reflect the different causal stories. Uh, so to give another example, let's say that we're looking at data on hospitals and sickness. Now you'd probably observe in the data that people who are in hospitals are sicker than people who are not in hospitals, right? Um, and you don't want to accidentally come to the conclusion that, oh, whoops, it's the, hosp- the hospitals made them sick, shut down all the hospitals to prevent all the sickness, right? That would be a bad conclusion. But our diagram might include the fact, well, were you sick yesterday? Uh, That's going to probably determine whether you go to the hospital today. So sick yesterday causes you to go to the hospital today and also causes you to be sick today. Uh, And so we have two different pathways that we can walk between being sick today and being in the hospital today. Maybe it is the case that being in the hospital causes you to be sick. Maybe we'll allow that possibility to happen, right? It's possible that diseases can spread in hospitals. But also we need to recognize this alternate causal pathway that, uh, you know, being sick today is caused by being sick yesterday and being sick yesterday causes you to go to the hospital. Uh, And so that's another explanation. We can see it on the diagram. It tells us what pathways we need to get rid of and close down in order to isolate and identify the pathways that we want. So in a relatively low low, non-technical way, you can figure out what it is that you need to do. How do you need to design your research study uh, in order to isolate just the pathways that you want? Uh, this, this whole idea comes from Judea Pearl, who's a computer scientist who was working on artificial intelligence when he came up with these sorts of sorts of diagrams. Um, and it, 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 the way that I present it is a simplified form of what he does. Cause I'm sort of targeting introductory uh, areas. I mean, in the more sophisticated version, you do bring back in those equations that I talked about. Um, but um, but it really, it really lets you focus in on the question of how do you identify just the causal pathway that you want and get rid of the others uh, without having to think too hard about really complex mathematical models or anything like that.
0: So it kind of captures what an econometrics textbook traditionally might just talk about as, you know, by presenting a system of equations or talking about, you know, bias in the error term and things like that, uh, but just in a more intuitive fashion.
1: That's right. Yes. Yeah. So it's it's another way of, of writing down a model, uh, whereas an economist would probably take one of two approaches, like I said, doing a set of equations, or like you mentioned, just sort of thinking through what we suspect these other explanations might be, as opposed to writing down a, of something. It's sort of a, in the middle in terms of its formality.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, great. Yeah. I mean, that sounds very useful. Certainly. I mean, I, I do think, yeah, the traditional way we've done it of, yeah, all the equations, it's, you know, as you, I think you mentioned in the textbook, it's like the, the people who the people who love equations are the people who then become professors, and then we think the way to teach things is with the most complicated equations. But then, uh, for for a lot of our our students, that's it's not necessarily the uh, the most accessible way. Certainly, just to start out with um, with what they're doing. Um, so actually, from that, why do I'll lead to my next question, uh, which is uh, why did you write this book and, and tell me more about how it differs from standard econometrics or stats. Uh, textbooks, or, or even other books that are focusing on on this question of causal inference.
1: Yeah, so I, uh, writing the book, I mean, it came about sort of unexpectedly, right? You know, So when I uh, started out as a professor, I mean, most of my research was in higher education, as you might guess from the fact that all the almost all the examples I've given so far have been in education. Uh, and you know, I, I did a lot of applied work in econometrics, but I didn't think of myself as an econometrician, really. Uh, but then um, I started to, uh, you know, try to explain these methods as clearly as I could, uh, largely on social media. Right. So I, I, I thought, well, here's a method that I'm interested in. I want to understand not just the technical details of it. I don't want to write down a proof. I want to understand what it's doing. And I felt that that was sort of a gap because, you know, if you look in an econometrics textbook, a lot of the time it will show you a proof of why something works uh, and it will prove the mathematical properties of whatever it is that you're doing. Um, but you know, when you actually work with data, you, you get a very different sense of how these things function, um, and, and why they work, right. You know, you can write down an equation that explains why a method works. Um, but when you, when you actually see it moving the data around, you realize what it is actually doing, like what it's trying to do. It's like when you control for a variable, what does that actually mean? Uh, and you know, one way to think about it is, uh, well, I am seeing what I can predict with that variable and I am subtracting that variation all out. Right? So whatever relationship is being driven uh, by some other variable, I'm literally finding that variation and I'm smashing it to bits and it's going away. Uh, and when you see that happening, it, it, I think, brings a lot more intuition as to why, what these methods are doing and why they work and how it links up with why we're doing them in the first place. So why do you control for a variable in the first place? Right? What is it actually doing? And so um, I started coming up with these explanations uh, they seem to resonate with people. Uh, people told me I was good at that. So I decided to write a book. <laughs> I was encouraged by uh, Scott Cunningham, who wrote causal inference, the mixtape, um, which has a lot of similarities uh, to my book. Um, it's a, it's a, a bit more advanced uh, in terms of who who it's targeting, whereas mine's more, a little bit more introductory, um, but there's a lot of overlap there. Um, so he said, yeah, you should write this book. So I said, OK. And so then I, I wrote a book.
0: Oh, well, that's great that he was supportive of that, and, and that's uh, that's useful, I think, because I imagine you know people looking for like a textbook on on causal reference, um, you know, you especially if they're if they're people who might find out about a textbook via Twitter or YouTube or something, um, they're they're likely to find out about both of yours. So uh, it's good to to make the distinction about sort of what what audiences. Um, so you're saying yours is generally uh, a little bit less mathematical than Scott's.
1: Right, it's a little bit less math. So the, the, in terms of the differences. Uh mine's definitely meth- less mathematical. I try to keep the equations to, I mean, there's there's still in there, it is an econometrics book, but to a bare minimum. Um his uh both go it, his, his spends a lot more time going into the history of met- of the different methods, which is kind of neat. I don't do a whole lot of that. Um and he does a lot, uh his is a, a little bit more closely related to like published literature. So I mean, certainly both of us use uh you know published academic studies as examples that we walk through. He, um, his walkthroughs are a bit more closely tied to what that actual liter- research is like. Whereas mine tries to keep it a bit more abstract and a bit more uh, um, introductory. Um, so there, that's sort of a lot of the differences between the two books.
0: So who's the, who's the audience for the book? Who, who do you anticipate buying it or who who has been buying it so far?
1: Yeah. So um, I think that the audience could be, uh, I think the audience is, you know, there's a couple of audiences, I guess I should say. Um, the, the one that I really wrote in, with in mind into intent, in, in, from the start intending it was um, undergraduate sort of level of, of um, you know students who are trying to understand causal inference research design, right? So if you're taking an econometrics course, this could be a way of doing econometrics that is more based on intuitive research design, then focus on, you know, the property, the properties of different statistical estimators, right? That is, that's how I teach my econometrics courses with this book, now, right? Um, I was also keeping in mind, uh, you know, other sorts of audiences, which would include you know, people who work with data and are not as familiar with causal inference, right? There's a lot of people out there who work with data all the time that maybe are on some intuitive level doing causal inference, right? They, they realize that if they want to answer some sort of causal question, they have to do some, st- some important things to handle those alternate causal ex- explanations, but had not really been introduced to it in any formal way. And so that includes people working in the private sector, right? I've, I've heard a lot from people who you know, are working on data science teams or whatever. Um, and even if they're not really doing econometrics, they're doing data science, this all this logic still applies to data science as well, and so the, the ways in which this can shape the things that they do, or people in other fields that are not as familiar with causal inference as econometricians are—you know, people coming from uh, sometimes sociology uh, or you know psychology—who uh, do data work uh, uh, but are not as familiar with causal inference—and it's for them too.
0: Okay, and have you found them to be uh, to be receptive? I, um, there's certainly. Uh, yeah, it does seem like a growing interest within the data science world in kind of recognizing that, well, you still, you still get, you know, very amusing Twitter Twitter kerfuffles when, when someone just says, well, we don't need causal inference because if we get, you know, if we get big enough data, it's not a problem. Um, but I, I hope that's not, not the majority view.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I mean, this is getting into the sociology of of data analysis, which is something that intrigues me a lot, but, you know, you know we, I can only speculate about. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, in terms of, I think that um, data scientists are aware of these issues, right? Um, and I think that, you know, there's a couple ways around them. One is to say, okay, well, you know, I know that's an issue, therefore, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to do predictive modeling and if you're only trying to do predictive modeling, then you often don't need to worry so much about causal inference because you're not trying to answer some sort of causal question. Right. Um, and I think that's a totally valid thing to do. Right. If that, if your important question is how do I predict this thing and you don't care why, then yeah, who cares about causal inference? Why make your life harder? Um, but another way around it is to, uh, you know, sort of do it ad hoc, which I think is what is happening a lot. So for example, let's say you're a data scientist, you're trying to forecast something out in the future um, and you uh, uh, you know that. Um, uh, sorry, got sidetracked there for a second. Um, um, to try yeah, to yeah.
0: forecast, you're trying to forecast
1: out in the future, um, but uh, you look at your data and you're like, "Oh, there's some sort of seasonality pattern here," um, and I, I, I want my forecast to reflect, you know, some overlying long-term trend, not really just some sort of seasonal fluctuation. And so, well, you would make an adjustment for seasonality. That's a very common thing that you might do in, in data science. And you might not even realize that you're doing causal inference when you do it, but you are, right? You're saying there's two different reasons why I might see this trend occurring. One of them is the one that I'm interested in, uh, that there's a long-term trend over time. The other one's one that I'm not interested in, that there's this seasonality pattern. And so I'm going to subtract out that seasonality pattern. That's a form of doing causal inference. Uh, and so, you know, being aware of those, of, of the need to do this, I think a lot of people who do that aren't aware that there is a more formal and for, sort of fully fledged and rigorous way of answering those questions. And once they find out about it, I think that they're often very interested in figuring out how to do it
0: properly. Right. And I guess the other the other thing I've, I've sort of heard frequently is that there's, sometimes people don't realize that their question isn't actually predictive. Like they frame it as a predictive question, but they, they don't realize that there's a causal element of it. So like a, the classic example would be, you know, what people like to buy our products the most. And that's that's a predictive question as framed, like what are the characteristics of people who are gonna buy our products or who have bought our products in the past? But then there's the, the, the conclusion people draws off in the causal one, like we should get more ads in front of these people. And then it becomes a causal question of if I advertise to these people more, will that actually uh, you know, get them to buy more? Um, and you could imagine the extreme, like maybe these are all the people who are gonna buy your stuff anyway. So serving more ads to them will just annoy them or or just be a bunch of a waste of money. But if you if you only think about your predictive question of like who is my main market, it then, and then mistake that for, for answering your your causal question, then you can get yourself in trouble.
1: Absolutely. And yeah, th- this is something I mentioned in the book that, you know, often we can we can say, okay, I recognize correlation is not the same as causation. I know that I'm not doing any sort of experiment or whatever. So this is only correlation. So, you know, you do the right things. You say, oh, I'm not going to use any causal language. I'm just going to say this is a correlation and everyone should recognize that. Um, but then the, the thing is that the causal question is so tempting. And in some cases, it's the only reason why anybody would care about a question in the first place that we just sort of naturally make that switch in our brains. Even if it says on the page, this is a correlation, we read it as a causal effect. And you see this all the time, especially in health studies, um, that are any sort of observational health study. Uh, You know, especially there's a newspaper article written about it, we tend to infer the causal thing from it. So, for example, like, you know, uh, scientists find a link between sleeping less and dying earlier, right? Uh, You see that paper all the time. And, you know, well, is it actually that the sleep is causing them to die? uh, Or is it just that people who tend to sleep less tend to die earlier? Maybe they're just really busy and stressed, and that's a health hazard, right? Um, And so, uh, you know, the study might. Just say this is a correlation that we found. Right. We didn't do an experiment. We didn't do any sort of causal inference. We just found a correlation. And even the maybe the newspaper say, doesn't say it's a causal effect. They just say we found a link. We found that people who tended to sleep less tended to die earlier. Um, and uh, uh, and all that's perfectly up and up. But then you read the study, then you read the article. And because you why would you care about the correlation? if it's not causal. So then therefore you sort of naturally want to interpret it as causal and then everybody shares things around like, oh, you better start sleeping more or you're going to die, right? Or you better start, you know, drink, drink coffee because that's related to higher income or, or higher uh, health outcomes or start drinking wine uh, or, you know, all these sorts of things that are uh, correlational but then why would you care about them if they're not causal and so we sort of take the interpretation that's
0: not really there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... It's very tricky, and yeah. As you said, it's like if sometimes you know if, if they if they'd done the same study and they'd say we found a correlation between this, and then they had said, and we think it might be like you said because you know uh, busy people don't sleep as much and they're stressed out, and so stressed out people die earlier. And sleep is an indicator that you're stressed out. People would be like, well, of course, the times when I when I'm pulling all nighters or, you know, not getting enough sleep uh, because I'm up at night worrying about something probably is when like things are going badly for me. So I guess it's not that surprising that someone else in that situation would have a higher death rate, but then that no longer becomes this, yeah, this tempting causal claim about like, here's how to cure your ills and, uh, and live forever. Um, so, uh, so in your, in your book, you, or I think, well, between your book and, uh, and maybe the website, you include, uh, R, R code, Python code and Stata code. So which one is the best language? <laughs> uh, you
1: know, I mean. Here's my take on programming. I mean, so this if you're just listening to this and you don't spend time on Twitter, uh, you know, the, which is the best language for whatever is a very common and just such a great use of all of our time uh, as, a, as a source of argument. Um, but, I mean, my, my real take on programming languages for data analysis is this. I think you should learn two. I don't think it matters which two. But once you've learned a second language, you can pick up whatever tool that you want and use it. Um, and so that's, that's my real take on it. Uh, I think that, you know, the different languages serve different purposes and you should use the language that is purpose-built for what you want to do. You know, Stata is purpose-built as an econometrics tool. And if you are doing the kind of econometrics that it is built to do, there's nothing easier, right? It is, it is designed with you in mind and it is very purpose-built for that. Uh, and you know, if you're doing the kind of econometrics that somebody, you know, doing research 10 years ago would recognize, Uh, then it is going to be probably the best tool. It might not be the fastest, um, but it will do things correctly. And I think that there's a lot of value in that. If you're doing uh, statistics more generally, uh, or you want to use some newer methods while still having a lot of uh, access to really good statistical analysis tools, I think R is probably your best bet. Um, you know, because it is built sort of with st- with statistics first in mind and programming second, um, it does a lot of things right in terms of using statistical analysis. It's got such a good backing for a lot of different sort of packages that are available that do different kinds of analysis uh, that's not available in other languages that are sort of programming languages first and statistics second. Um, and it's faster than Stata and it can, it has a lot more new methods than Stata Stata can be, Stata can be kind of slow to get some of the more, you know, cutting edge stuff. Whereas, I mean, ours, because partially because R is so easy to build packages in, it's way easier to build a package in R than in Stata, uh, that you tend to get, I think, especially these days, more of the new methods are going to, you're going to find them available first in R, um and then Python, uh, Python is one of those languages I mentioned that is sort of programming first and analysis second. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not built to do data analysis. You can do data analysis in it, uh, but it's all sort of secondary. And so you, you, when you're working with it, you, you sort of run into some weird things where, you know, it's clearly not made for you. There's some convenience things that you get in data first languages like state and R that you don't get in Python. That can be headaches. Um, but, uh, uh, because it's, you know, programming first, it tends to, the things that programmers like to do, things like data science, you know, it tends to get first. Uh, and so, you know, if you're doing data science and you want to know Python, uh, and it's going to be harder to do econometrics in it because that's not what it's built for. Um, you can do econometrics in Python, but I don't know why you would. Uh, I know people who do it. I don't know why they do it. Um, but if you want to combine, you know, your data analysis with like web scraping, or you know, a, a management of enormous data set, a da- databases, or whatever things that are you know programmers are going to be more likely to do than data analysts, and analysts. Then Python's going to be the integration tool for that. So again, I think the different tools serve different purposes. I think that you should learn two languages, whatever they are, uh, whatever fits the, the needs that you have. And then once you've learned that second language, you can learn the third and fourth and fifth and sixth. Super duper easy. So whatever whatever the winds of change happen to be in the future, you'll be prepared
0: for them. Kind of like uh, I guess my my humanities friends who like. Going, you know, they go to Europe and they learn French and, and they always hear about how Europeans can just kind of speak any language. But there's sort of like that element of like, just because if you grew up around a couple languages, then like the picking a new one up and, and making the new connections in it and you know, uh, adjusting your accent and your syntax and whatever is, uh, is kind of a manageable thing. But it's the, the very first time you try to move away from, from English is when uh, it's, it's really scary for people and, and most challenging. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that there's a, there is a good analogy there. Um, I, I The way that I think of it is the first programming language you learn is hard because you're learning how to program. Uh, just like when you're a kid and you're learning how to speak, it takes you a few years to get that going. The second language is hard because you have to unlearn all the specifics of the first one in order to realize that those were just specifics and not general things. Uh, and then once you've done that, though, the third one's easy, right, because you already know how to, you know, partition this, what, what's specific and what's general about language and, you know, apply the tools that you already have, um, but not be so, so caught up on, uh, you know, the details.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so you've also been doing uh, YouTube videos is how's, how's that going?
1: That's great. Um, so I, yeah, I've been doing YouTube videos for a while. Um, you know, programming tips and uh, uh, you know, econometrics stuff. Um, and I enjoy it. You know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's nice to be able to sort of reach a broader audience. Um, you, uh, you know, I, I like to be able to, you know, I'm in the habit of talking to a camera for 10 minutes at a time, right? Uh, which is handy. Um, you know, it, it's funny, you know, ever since, you know, the pandemic hit and, and all the, a lot of the classes have gone online anyway, you know what? What is my actual job in terms of teaching? Well, it's you know turning on Zoom and talking to a room full of people in, in live. You know, I'm I'm a professional streamer. <laughs> I'm a professional streamer and YouTuber. That's my job, right? Um, uh, is sort of one way to think about it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I like being able to reach a broader audience. I think it's helpful, you know, especially for people who are you know in classes elsewhere. Uh, you know, if you're if you're you you might want to get the same information from multiple different sources, uh, especially in, in econometrics where, you know, uh, sometimes people who are teaching it are, are so good at it that it can be hard for them to get across the ideas in the best way. Sometimes you get to that problem with certain fields, especially highly, highly technical ones. Uh, and so students in that class being able to go to somebody who, I'll admit, is not as good of an econometrician probably as their professor is, um, but is able to sort of speak to their level maybe a little bit easier uh, is, is, is valuable, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so pedagogy and public outreach are usually not valued a whole lot in the economics discipline. Um, how is how has your work uh, in these lines been received? Do you feel like it's been worth it?
1: Um, I think it's been worth it for for my own purposes. Um, I'm not sure how professionally rewarding it, it, it you know it will be in the end. You know, if you look at my my tenure file or whatever, you know, I mentioned my YouTube videos, but I don't think it's going to count for much. You know, my the book that I wrote counts for. I don't know, a third or a half of a, of a published paper. Um, but I mean, I, 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 because, because I'm, I'm, you know, I've always been in departments where, uh, you know, the, the research expectations are at the level where I can fulfill those and then still spend all this time on pedagogical stuff. And, you know, because teaching is also very valued to these departments, you know, I'm not, you know, at, you know, University of Washington or Berkeley or Harvard or whatever, where, you know, nobody really cares about the teaching of your, your, your teaching quality is not a part of your thing, that it does count a little bit. Um, and I don't have, you know, the same sort of research pressures to publish, publish, publish. So I can fulfill those research requirements, uh, you know, well enough, and, you know, think I'm not going to have to worry about tenure, uh, and then still, you know, focus on on getting all this stuff across. Because I, I, I do feel, you know, when you, when you feel about the impact that you're having, uh, you know, you can put a paper out in the world, you know, and it gets cited, you know, 10 times or whatever. And, you know, a couple people read it and a couple people say they like it and that's great. But, you know, it's, it's, you get the immediate sense that you're making a difference uh, when you can reach, you know, a thousand people. Uh, and that's, that's a good feeling.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we were mainly talking about your book, but, um, why don't you take a minute to tell us, I mean, your own research is, as you mentioned, primar- primarily about education. Um, so, so what are you working on now?
1: Uh, so right now, actually, um, I, I, right now my research has also shifted sort of in the direction of uh, econometrics loosely framed. Uh, so right now, actually, the project that I'm working on is a follow up to study that I did earlier, uh, where that study was about uh, researcher decisions. So uh, what we did is, uh, so when you're doing research, when you're when you're completing some form of empirical research, you know, there's a lot of decisions that you need to make. Uh, you know, so you know how do you clean the data? Uh, how do you decide who's in your sample and who's not? How do you decide what you know controls to include in your model? And you know, sometimes these questions have a right answer, and it's possible to make a mistake. But even you know, when you're not making a mistake, there are often multiple right answers that you could you could choose between. Um, so uh, 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 and so, the question is how how different how standardized are these sorts of choices? Are people going to make the same choice in the same way? Um, and so what, uh, the, what, we, what we did is I, I gathered a bunch of different researchers, about 14 different researchers, and um, we re- each replicated the same two studies multiple times without knowing what the other people were doing and also without knowing what the original study was. So I, you know, I, I gave people, here's the data you're going to use, here's the question you're going to answer, here's some details, now go do the study as if it was your own. And we got hugely different Choices, right? People made different choices in data cleaning. They made different choices in, you know, who was in the model, uh, who was out of the model, how the model was constructed. You know, using logit, probit, or using linear regression. What programming language are you using? And in fact, what was what one of the, I think one of the, one of the key headline results that I think is, is that no two researchers had the same sample size by the time they got to their analysis. Um, and, you know, and it wasn't clear that any of these people were making a mistake, uh, you know, even, and even after I took out the things that you might call mistakes based on, you know, things that didn't line up with the instructions that I'd given, still nobody had the same sample size. Uh, and this did affect the results that the results were quite different across the different uh, researchers and, you know either just being more varied. Some people got low results. Some people got high results. Uh, in one of the studies, some of the results were negative and some of them were positive. Uh, and, you know, this, this suggests that, you know, when you're looking at a, a single study, you need to recognize that it's not just, you know, sampling variation or things like that, uh, but that also that, you know, the, that some, there's a researcher effect there that things might have turned out differently if somebody else completely, you know, honestly tried to approach the exact same study. They might've come to a different conclusion uh and i call this research i don't well this is this is not my term but i call it researcher degrees of freedom um because you have different you know choices that you can make uh so the follow-up is doing this a similar idea but on a broader scale with more people um and uh trying a couple of different things to try to isolate well what is the um what is it that could drive agreement on these things right that could drive standardization which isn't necessarily like the right answer it's not necessarily the case that there, because there's not a single right answer of how to do things here, there are multiple reasonably reasonable answers. It's not like we have to standardize all these things. Um, but if you wanted to, right? What are the important stages? Right? Is it that uh, you know at the is it that people are confused about what the actual question is? Right? There's a paper about one of these other man, many analyst studies. They're called that says, well, the only problem you know is it's not that people really are making these different decisions; that people were confused about what question they were answering. Right? And that's uh, one of the responses to one of these studies. Um, and so, well, we're going to check that, right? Uh, and so, uh, or, or, you know, if we standardize the data cleaning process, are things still different after the fact? If we standardize these different things, um, you know, first of all, how much does it narrow the range of variation across researchers? Uh, and also, um, uh, you know, when is it important? Does it seem like it's eliminating errors or is it just, you know, you know, standardizing all, among people who could reasonably disagree? Uh, and that's, that's something that I'm working on next.
0: Right now, that sounds like really important work. We're definitely, you know, everyone's becoming much more aware of how, yeah, how many of these little decisions there are, and how they can kind of add up. And then, you know, when you combine that with sort of file drawer bias, you know, intentional or not, where you know you don't get a result, and so then you don't send it in, or you don't get a result, and so when you send it in, the big name journal says, "Well, you didn't find anything, so it's not that interesting." Uh, then that that skews towards like the one person who just, you know, even purely innocently just ended up making all the choices that ended up making, you know, stars and all the regression tables, (laughs) they're published, their thing gets published and the effect is, is large. And we, it then becomes part of the sort of the discourse and conventional wisdom about, you know, this is the published top-notch study that shows, shows this thing matters.
1: Yeah. And, and I mean, you see all these sorts of things come up all the time, right. Where, uh, you know, you, you, um, yeah, you you get that these that, that studies are easier to publish if they have surprising findings or sig- at least significant findings, statistically significant, uh, and then that can really guide uh, what we perceive the right answer to be. Uh, and also, it's going to guide you know future results, right? If somebody got a fluke study that showed that some treatment was really effective, uh, it then becomes harder to show to publish studies that show that it's not. Uh, you know, because now you know not only are you do have a non significant result, but you're bucking against the established findings. Well, why do you think that you got a different finding than they did? Well, I don't know. i you know, the, the, the thing that drove their finding might've been something that they didn't even talk about in their paper that they didn't even realize was an important decision. Um, so that, and that, I think that that's something that we're going to have to figure out how to overcome. I, I am, I am more optimistic about the quality of, of results. I think you got to take them, take them with a grain of salt because we do have all these problems, but, uh, I do think that there is a useful signal in the noise um, but that that signal could be improved relative to the noise, probably if we put our minds
0: to it. Right, right, yeah, absolutely, um, yeah. Just to, but it is it is very good to be to be aware of this, and and you know, uh, since we're honest, to try to quantify, you know, how how big of a problem uh, potentially is it, and and how much we can can we really say about it. What, um, one
1: well, of the examples recently, and I. I, I I might get in trouble saying this because I don't remember the exact details of all of it. But there was a very cool paper recently about the um, the Fama-French factor. So the Fama-French factors are a very famous uh, set of mo- basically models in, in finance. So in finance, if you want to beat the market, right, you want to get a portfolio that does better than the market, uh, that's really hard to do. Um, and uh, sometimes people think that they've done it. Um, but it turns out that there's these sort of set of understood anomalies in the in finance where you, you can build portfolios in certain ways. for example, building a portfolio that buys small companies and sells big companies, uh, or a portfolio that um, you know buys companies that have recently had increases and sells companies that have recently had decreases, right? And these portfolios are known to beat the market, but generally at a, at increased risk. so it's a, it's a trade-off between risk and and reward, right. Um, but they're understood. And often when people think that they found other ways of beating the market, uh, if you look at their the portfolio that they say, oh, if you construct your portfolio in this way, it's going to beat the market. But then it turns out that it's actually just one of these other anomalies in disguise. Those are the Fama French factors. Yeah. Um, and so uh, what a recent paper showed is that, well, these Fama French factors, the way that they're designed, like, for example, you're going to buy the small companies and sell the big companies. Well, what is what determines small and what determines big? And that was Eugene Fama making a choice you know, 30 years ago about what small and what big meant. <laughs> And what this recent paper showed is that if he had made those choices slightly differently, then this then something like small versus big porf- uh, portfolio might be much more profitable than we thought it was, uh, or much less profitable depending on how the choice was made. And it was large, somewhat arbitrary how that choice was made. And the entire field of finance is based on this sort of stuff, right? Uh, and uh, so it's interesting to think about you know how far-reaching these you know relatively you know innocuous choices at the time uh can end up being
0: wow well yeah now you're, now you're just making me feel like man it's you know is any of this stuff any good um but uh See, that's the thing though like so from my french like it could have been better but also it is very informative it did help
1: explain a lot of stuff over the past you know decades that we've been talking about it um you know, so even if it could be better and could have been improved and some of it was arbitrary, some of it also was not arbitrary, right? So that, that's the thing. Like there is there's there is a signal in the noise. It could be better, but it's there.
0: Right, and I guess the alternative is just to, you know, go with our hunches or like, you know, what, uh, you know, our, our boss told us 10 years ago when we were being trained or whatever it is and, and just assume that's true, which is uh, even even more likely to be distorted than anything we, tra- we try to do more systematically. So every effort we can do, towards making things more systematic is valuable. Right. Um, okay. Well, um, really uh, glad to have a ch- had a chance to talk to you again um, for the audience. The name of the book is The Effect, an Introduction to Research Design and Causality. Um, Nick Huntington-Klein at Seattle University. He has a YouTube channel. He has a webpage. He's on Twitter. Um, the book itself is in... A slightly before final version um, online as well, so uh, you can you can flip through it. Um,
1: It's it's final version,
0: isn't the final version? Okay, okay, great. I think maybe I looked at it earlier when it was not quite not everything was quite as quite fully polished. Yeah, you Um, can read the
1: book for free if you want uh, on theeffectbook.net. There's also a link to to buy there, but uh, you can read it for free.
0: Yeah. But you know, if you can afford it, buy it, right? So I think we all we all stare at screens too much all day. So I think uh, even if you're staring at a screen doing your statistics, it's good to uh, to have a textbook um, open open at your side. It's just one thing that'll just change your field of focus and uh, and give your eyes a little rest. Uh, okay, so uh, thank you very much, and um, yeah, look forward to uh, hearing more about your other research in the future. Thanks so much. It's been great.